Coming up on today's show, Premier Jason Kenney joins us on, well, his last day of reading Premier. We'll also talk about gas prices. You probably heard about the cuts made by OPEC yesterday. It's going to force more increases at the pump for us. We'll find out how much and how concerned should we be about the risk of nuclear war? Vladimir Putin, we'll find out. All right. Very pleased that Premier Jason Kenney has uh, found time to join us today. Premier Kenny, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much, Jay. I'm in a car, so hope, hopefully it's not too loud. Sounds fine. No problem at all. Yeah. Um. So this is it. Last full day as uh, Premier of Alberta. How does that feel? Is it a relief? Are you angry? Are you regretful? How does it feel on this final day? Feels like any other day. I'm, I just finished a news conference announcing uh, an agreement with the Philippines government to uh, help bring more... Uh, wonderful Filipino nurses to help our healthcare system, expanding bridging programs for nurses, 50 new ICU beds. Yesterday I announced probably one of the most important things in Alberta's modern economic history. Uh, it's going to add 10 million airline seats to Alberta, uh, billions to our economy, uh, with WestJet choosing Alberta as yeah. its exclusive global hub. And my point is, Shay, uh, I don't sit around in introspection. That's not the kind of person I am. I just get the, get her done, and that's what I'm doing right up to the last minute. You certainly are. I mean, and there's people saying, oh, he's trying to build a legacy. He's trying to change the tenure. I mean, is it is it that? Is it trying to get all the things done that you wanted to get done before the clock runs out? What's the, Or is it just this is how Jason Kenney operates? It, it's not very complicated. You showed up for work today, so did I. I'm just doing my job. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, 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 if you, since I don't have anything left to lose, I'll just say so much of that political commentary where people are always like overthinking things and imputing motives, it's its just silly. Uh, it, you know, people in public life, or at least me, mm. what motivates me, God knows it's not the adulation. <laughs> <laughs> it's getting things done. And uh, that, if there's a legacy, it's this government has got a lot done, like 375 platform commitments who delivered a 93% of them, an economic boom fastest growing population in our history, more people working in Alberta than ever before, $160 billion of new investment, unprecedented diversification, uh, a stronger province, a stronger economy. Um, I, I'm, I'm more optimistic than I've ever been about Alberta's future. And you're right. There, there's a lot of really, really good things that have been happening in our province in the last little while here. There's no question. But as you know, and you're not going to argue, there were some disasters along the way. How will history judge Jason Kenney? Some of it was your doing, some of it completely out of your hand. We had a pandemic. But looking back, how will history judge your time as Premier of Alberta, do you think? Well, I don't know, and I'll leave that to, to others. Uh, I, I don't agree, though, about disasters. If you're talking about COVID, Shay, we... Uh, yeah, response was not perfect. Tell me whose was or yeah. whose could be facing a totally unprecedented global uh, public health crisis, collapse of the world economy, and for Alberta, biggest collapse of energy prices ever. Uh, you know, Shay, we've exited, uh, I mean, COVID, the virus will still circulate, but we're past the pandemic, and it uh, we, we leave it with a lower a fatality rate for COVID than Canada, lower than three provinces. Unlike several provinces, we never had to ship ICU patients out of our province. Uh, and uh, we did that with the least damaging restrictions. I, I was I just at an event at MRU, and a, uh, a um, administrator there came up to me, said he, he moved here from Nova Scotia partly because of Alberta's COVID response, because we, we avoided the kind of hard lockdowns that he, his family found so damaging uh, in Eastern Canada. So 
Uh, I'll tell you, uh, our, our response was not perfect, uh, but uh, I think that is, uh, in the broader context of things, Alberta did well. Uh, compared to many, many places around the world and across Canada. I, I wonder if there's ever a moment where you think, oh boy, I could have just stayed in Ottawa. I mean, I was a big wheel in Ottawa, very highly placed within the national conservative movement. I didn't have to do this. Is there regrets? Could you, Or are you still thinking, you know what, it was right to come out here and, and become Premier of Alberta? No, yeah, to be honest with you, um, yeah, after the 2015 federal election, uh, I... Uh, and done, really mentally done with politics, wanted to move on to new and different challenges. And, and that's where my, my headspace was at in, in 2015 and, and early 16. Uh, but then I, I really, you know, just walking out of MRU, a, another staff member rushed up to me uh, just like five minutes ago and said, quote unquote, he said, Premier Kenny, I met you during your first leadership campaign. And I, I said to you then, please help uh, save Alberta and our economy. He said, you did that. You turned it around. Thank you. So I, I don't have regrets. Um, I decided to, I saw the disaster unfolding under the NDP. I was deeply concerned that they would forever change the political culture of Alberta to the politics of envy uh, that animates socialism. And I wasn't going to let that happen to my province. I'm a stubborn Irishman. And I was, I was going to fight back. And I did. Uh, with a huge number of people. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to have done so. Uh, I, it was never my intention to be in this job for a long time. Uh, I might have maybe stuck around for a couple of more years, uh, but I'm, ha- I'm personally super excited about uh, getting some, something more like a normal life, <laughs> uh, getting figuring out what a weekend is like, um, and and being able to su- pursue some more personal interests and different challenges, but uh, I feel like I'm going on le- leaving 25 years of public life on a high shade with this province firing on pretty much all cylinders. Uh, a couple of things that you raised there that I want to dig a little deeper into, if I can, and, and that is uh, you were going to fight. You were going to fight. That's what you came here for. You were going to fight for Alberta. You were going to fight against socialism. You were going to fight against Trudeau. You were going to fight. It was fight, 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 fight. Some of the fights, I think. Can we be honest? You went in promising to fight fights that you knew, Mr. Kenny. You couldn't win before you even started. You were going to lose before they started, but it was all about encouraging people to get behind the fight. Was it just selling the fight? Uh, well, I, I disagree, uh, Shay. Like, you know, people said you have no chance. Rachel Bontley guaranteed that we had no chance of winning on our constitutional challenge of the carbon tax. We won four to one at the Alberta Appeal Court. The Alberta Appeal Court, but that doesn't matter. And and, and three of the eight Supreme Court justices agreed with us. I mean, it could have gone the other way. It was a credible case. We almost, we we won at one level and narrowly lost at the other. I was also told by the NDP and many of the the know-it-alls, you know, all these like um, so-called pundits, there was no point in fighting uh, the No More Pipelines Law Bill C-69. Uh, we won a historic 4-1 to judgment at the appeal court, and I got all nine other provinces to join us so that we're not isolated. We have strength in numbers. Uh, we've, we fought to, to raise the cap on the fiscal stabilization program. I know that sounds kind of boring, but it's worth billions of dollars to Alberta, and we won. Uh, we... Um, you know, we fought to get a billion dollars to put blue-collar oil field workers back to work during the crisis two years ago from Ottawa. We got that. We helped to create thousands of jobs. But most importantly, Jay, we, we fought for an economic renewal here that's taking off. Yes. I mean, 
that that, that announcement uh, uh, yesterday from WestJet is a game changer for. But by the way, that will improve air service in Edmonton, not just Calgary. The huge new hydrogen economy we paved the way for that with policy. The petrochemicals. Uh, the uh, film and television, the manufacturing, the huge new de Havilland plant, and so much of the, the booming tech sector. Edmonton has the fastest growing tech sector in North America. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I say fight, I mean, like, like get in, you, you, it means bringing intensity to the, to, uh, the sometimes slow-moving uh, process of politics. And that's, if, if nothing else, people might accuse me of being too intense, but um, <laughs> well, I think some accuse you of not being intense enough, and I think that's the next question I want to ask is yeah. where we are now. Uh, the fight has been elevated, and now it's gone nuclear to a lot of people. And I know you've expressed some concern about what that means for the conservative movement in Alberta, if that continues to be the focus of the party. Um, did you start that fire? Are you worried that it's gotten out of control? Um, well, I am worried about the, the future uh, of uh uh, a politics, if it becomes characterized by the uh, ex- extreme views yeah, of a small yeah. fringe. I mean, I, as I've said, uh, there were, um, in Ontario, for example, six uh, MLAs in Ontario terms who criticized government on uh, COVID policy and vaccines. Uh, they got thrown out of the Conservative caucus. They started two alt-right parties that got 2% of the vote. I don't think we should let 2% of the electorate govern the province. And I, I, I think that, you know, I've tried imperfectly, admittedly, to to maintain a Big Ten conservative coalition yeah. that is grounded in the uh, values and aspirations of the broad mainstream. And that doesn't mean, like, right smack in the middle of the political spectrum, but it means not going off in uh, anti-science, separatist, uh, conspiracy theory directions, and uh, I, I just trust that Albertans won't won't let that happen. That they'll uh, uh, they'll ensure that their government and, uh, is is in touch, you know, respectful of the rule of law, uh, and and that the, fo- the the small minority who just want to burn everything down don't end up. Uh, uh, governing the province. I know you're a very political animal. You live and breathe politics. And I want to ask you that same question, not about Alberta, but about the world in general. There's all kinds of um, pundits and analysts and political scientists and people talking about the war on liberal democracy that's taking place around the world. You don't have to look that far to see examples of it. Um, Are you concerned about that? Do you think democracy as we know it and we've sort of built in the Western world is under threat right now? Well... Um, maybe in some places, but fundamentally our institutions are strong. And, you know, one of the... I'm partly a conservative because I believe in the strength of our institutions, of our customs. You you, you know, some some angry people and coarseness on social media uh, cannot undo uh, the fundamental bedrock of our uh, part parliamentary democracy grounded in hundreds of years of, of, of history the 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 uh, rule of law uh of um of ordered liberty of uh, uh parliamentary democracy uh we have uh, institutions that are i believe so strong that they can withstand uh sometimes destructive passions Taking a look at the time that you spent as premier, I mean, 
we were talking about a pandemic, which, as you said, absolutely nobody had a, a rule book and nobody handled it perfectly. Do you think you talked about the approach that you took where you tried to be the big tent leader and have everybody have? Did that end up costing you in the end? Would it have been better right at the beginning? Maybe it was Aloha Gate, whatever it was, saying, that's it, you're done. You Either you're in line, I'm the leader, get in line. I'm not going to entertain the sniping from the sidelines. We're all on the same team or you're off the team. Would that have been a better approach for you to take? Yes. That simple, eh? <laughs> I mean, I, I observed, look, I was uh, part of Stephen Harper, Harper's caucus. Yeah. And that, that we nobody would tolerate that kind of stuff. Uh, look, uh, Francois Legault was just, just won a huge mandate with, with a, I think Quebec was way too restrictive uh, on COVID, but they, they, uh, the government chose a direction and the people just ratified it. Uh, Ontario, the same thing. I just told you, like, Doug Ford removed six MPPs mm-hmm. from his caucus for going offside policy and being against vaccines, etc. They formed two alt-right parties, which got 2% of the vote. He won an historic mandate. Scott Moe, the same thing. He had some of the same tensions internally, but it never became disruptive. And so I, I, I admit I, I came to this with perhaps a naive and idealistic view about uh, uh, about caucus in the parliamentary system, and um, uh, I, I wouldn't take the same approach uh, if I had it to do all over again. I would take an approach much more similar to Stephen Harper, uh, Scott Moe, and Doug Ford. Um. As you say, it's a 25-year political career that uh, is at least at a crossroads. Uh, you're still a young man, though. So, so what is the plan? What does the future hold for you? What's next? You guys hiring? Well, you, you, now, now you're a radio host? <laughs> that was, I mean, I've seen that pattern play out before. I, I don't know. You know, I, honest, <laughs> honestly, Shay, I, I've, been, I've been given her, like, my staff can tell you, I think I've been averaging about four hours of sleep uh, at night for the past couple of weeks, just just getting her done, mm-hmm. and so I, I've not allowed myself to uh, spend a lot of time thinking about that. But I I, um, I will stay uh, as a member of the legislative assembly for at least a period of time. Um, I want to certainly honor my constituents, and then uh, uh, I hope to have a, a bit of time to catch up on sleep and and think about the future. And I, I suspect. I would really like some opportunities in the private sector and uh, to carve out some time where I can continue uh, to uh, have an, some impact on issues about which I am passionate. Uh, so you might you might see me doing some work for think tanks and mm-hmm. uh, doing some writing uh, about issues that I, frankly, you know, 25 years, I've got some experience and maybe even a little bit of expertise on some issues that I'm passionate about. Indigenous Economic development. We've just had, had some huge breakthroughs on that, not by accident. Um, you know, immigration reform and, and policy. For my, I'm the longest-serving Canadian immigration minister. Foreign policy. I deployed the Canadian military to train Ukrainian forces. I'm very passionate about you, Ukraine. So you, you might don't be surprised if you see me over there in Ukraine trying to find a way to, to help with their reconstruction. So uh, I'm looking forward to whatever the future brings, though. Uh, and, uh, you know, Stephen Harper said to me after the 2015 election, he sat down to kind of map out his future. Yeah. And he decided that he was never going to retire. And uh, I've decided that's a pretty good aspiration for myself as well. But you're, you're not you're not saying you're running for re-election in the spring. That, that's off the table. No, we can no, safely no, no. assume that. 
not uh, running for re-election. I've been clear about that. Uh, 25 years. I paid my dues. <laughs> I've uh, done my service. And uh, it's time for different and uh, new people. Fair enough. Um, what about the party that you built, that you created, that you united? I mean, you brought the UCP into existence under your leadership. And three mm. years later, it's sort of, um, you know, coming apart at the seams, some might say. It's hanging on. It's still there. There's a leadership race today. How do you feel about the party that sort of came together under your leadership? Well, I think it has uh, the potential to um, uh, to reunite and to, and to be reelected. I think we're, I'm my government is leaving an amazing foundation of of achievement. Ninety three percent of our platform commitments kept this huge economic renaissance, unprecedented diversification of population growth, all of it. Uh, if uh, the party and next government decide to actually continue to focus on getting the job done for people's day-to-day concerns and not flying out into an orbit of things like de facto separatism, uh, getting into fights with the courts and, uh, and uh, indulging conspiracy theories about vaccines and, and taking an anti-science posture. Like if, if that's where it goes, uh, I would not be optimistic. But if it's, uh, if it's a mainstream free enterprise party focused on, on the broad priorities of the public, uh, I think it, it will do very well. Premier Kenny, I appreciate your time today. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. And, uh, and thanks for always uh, being uh, more than willing to come on the show and, and share your thoughts with us. I do appreciate it. 100%. Thank you so much, Rick. Thank you. That is Premier Jason Kenny. The average price for a liter of gasoline in Alberta right now is listed at about a dollar sixty-one. That's the average in Alberta, and uh, doesn't look like we should be expecting them to go down anytime soon. You probably heard that OPEC met yesterday and agreed to cut production limit by two million barrels a day. Now, in reality, they haven't been producing to the limits anyhow. So, in terms of real loss to the supply it's probably closer to about a million barrels a day somewhere around there regardless it's a reduction and it's going to further tighten things up which will lead to an increase in oil already has and ultimately that's going to lead to an increase in the eye-wateringly high gas prices we're already seeing to help us make sense of what's going on we have dave yeager joining us an energy policy analyst and oil and gas writer and the author of from miracle to menace alberta a carbon story dave thank you for joining us i appreciate your time uh, good morning. So OPEC says they're taking the action they took yesterday, the limit uh, reduction of 200, 2 million barrels, um, to stop the slide in oil prices. Well, it worked. I mean, oil has jumped right up to about 94 bucks. I, well, yeah, it worked. Well, that's the Brent price, yeah. It, well, it worked for the moment. Yeah. Uh, they always do that. Sometimes yeah. they talk up the price and, and so on. But I think uh, the day before, probably uh, a really important, uh, the CEO of um, Saudi Aramco was in a conference in Europe, and he said the world should be worried. Now, this was only in the business press, not the not the not the mainstream press, but the business press. When he said the world should be worried, what he was saying was that the world supply demand is really really tight, mm-hmm. and that, for example, should China uh, relax its COVID restrictions, or even if air, aircraft travel, airplane travel return to pre uh, pre COVID levels, another 1.7 million barrels a day. There was a real global supply supply problem, and, and that's all he was cautioning. He said, you know, the West has got to be thinking about this, and uh, they should really be encouraging the development of new supplies. That was on Tuesday, and then, of course, on Wednesday, 
uh, they dropped the bomb. And I guess the the a remarkable part of that decision it was it was two and a half years ago uh, when they did the in March of 2020 when they did the COVID lockdowns that OPEC became OPEC plus. And right, uh, yeah. so they Russia joined. Russia, yeah. yeah, well, this is big. This is big. This is, <laughs> this is I mean, the Saudis were like 11 million barrels a day, and the Russians were 10. So all of a sudden, 20% of the world's oil production ended up in the hands of, uh, well, uh, Bar- uh, Barack, or uh, pardon me, uh, Biden was campaigning in 2020 and called Saudi Arabia a pariah state. And now everybody's calling Russia a pariah state. Well, mm-hmm. those two teamed up created OPEC plus and pulled 10 million barrels a day off of them and the rest of the members pulled 10 million uh, barrels a day off the world markets and in fact saved the world oil industry from collapse at that point. The the whole business would have gone into the dumpster and collapsed entirely had they not taken this issue as initiative. At that time, nobody thought that was such a big deal. But on Wednesday, um, you know, Pariah State Saudi Arabia joined Pariah State Russia (laughs) And really, with all, I don't know other way to put it. I've been worrying about this interview about yesterday, but that was a big stick in the eye to the White House. <laughs> well, this <laughs> is the thing. Let's, let, let's take a look at the motivation. OPEC Plus comes out and says the reason we're doing it is we don't like seeing this slide in the price of oil. I mean, right, it's yeah. still over ninety bucks a barrel. I mean, the slide is—it's all relative. I mean, oil is still doing very well. And then the other—I mean, this really benefits Russia. And you're right; it's a big middle finger to the White House. So why did they do well, it? They, well, they, well, Biden. I mean, I mean, I'm just just trying to pick the right words here. But the, the Biden's view on oil is is I don't know. The only word I come up with is incomprehensible. He campaigned against oil in 2020 because that was cool. You know, yeah. Trudeau's done yeah. that three times. Sure. One one a bunch of elections. I get that. Cancels Keystone XL first his first first act of uh, sworn on sworn in. But by by a year ago, he was asking Saudi Arabia for more oil. He got amnesia about insulting them on the world stage. And on his way to the uh, climate conference in Glasgow, uh, at the G20 meeting, he said, oh, by the way, to Saudi Arabia, could you, could you increase production? Yeah. Yeah. And at the same time, he was, he's extended an olive branch to Iran. We all know how popular Iran is right now for their treatment of the, of the, of the, better, of the fairer sex, if I can still say that in the 21st century, but his treatment of women and, and human rights. And that, of course, angered Saudi Arabia. Because those two countries have been at loggerheads over control of uh, political influence in the Persian Gulf. Uh, and then in the, yesterday, sometime yesterday, he was over back in Venezuela saying, well, come, maybe if you guys, you know, treat the word, treat uh, elections more fairly, we'd let Chevron um, produce more oil. Well, they had Chevron on the stand interrogating them for climate crimes a year ago. So I don't know what they're doing, but all I know is that uh, the people with 20% of the world's oil have, have have basically said, and then then there's the cap the the price on Russian oil, which would affect right, uh, yeah. affect world prices. And then there's draining the strategic petroleum reserve <clears throat> in a world that needs more oil. Um, White House puts a million barrels a day on stream. That sends a signal <clears throat> to the, all the oil producers in the world. What should I do as as producers do their 2023 budget? Saying, well, should I spend more or should I not? And, you know, in Canada, we've got the um, Wilkinson's out here offering an olive branch, but he says, you know, we're still going ahead with the, with the, um, uh, the emissions cap and ramping up the carbon price. And so, wow. I mean, I go back to the words from the, uh, from the head of uh, Aramco. The world should worry. The world should be worried. This is really, really something. It's, uh, it's, it's bizarre. You're, there's so many different moving pieces. You're right, David. And, no I, kidding. And, and I guess the question is, it's really tough to predict, but what we know is it's going to cost us more, bottom line, right? I mean, it's not getting any better. 
Well, I, I don't know what the, you know how far your radio station goes, but I mean, uh, Alberta and the rest of the world have never really done that well at the same time. If you go back in history, yeah. So I, I mean, it's 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 a it's a it's a global problem. It's a global, you know. They say is the world going into recession? Well, Europe probably already is, and so there's some real challenges coming ahead. I can't, you know, as, as challenging it may be at the gas pump for our listeners here this morning. I, I still can't think of anywhere else I'd rather be. We still have the That's lowest right. natural. We still have the lowest natural gas prices in the world. And uh, one of the reasons the prices in the pump are as high as they are is, is because of taxation, which can be adjusted should somebody be inclined to do so. Albert has done that once and then reversed it because the price of oil went down. So I'm, of all the things in the world, I'm, I've, I think we should be worried about a lot more things than, than the price. My view is, is at the price of the pump. In the end, we've got probably as cheap gasoline as anywhere in the world, certainly the world's lowest natural gas. Um, I, I'd be looking at where this goes geopolitically on the global scale on the on the front between Ukraine and Russia and what's really going on in the Middle East I think we've got bigger bigger problems than uh, than what we're paying at the local gas pump in my view anyway so what's your anticipation what is it that you're looking at and being worried about well I uh, I think that there's a real oil shortage and uh, at some point the, they extended the, the strategic petroleum uh, reserve withdrawals uh, a million barrels a day were supposed to end this month now they're going on for another month and so that's going to that's going to tighten up. The, there's some attempt to do these sanctions of some sort. They're going to try to put some kind of cap on, on Russian production or, or sanction supply, and they're they're working through that within the yeah. reality. So the price of the price of oil is going to go up. the The real problem is how long is it going to stay there? Because the last time that the world had high oil prices in the late 1970s and early 80s. And the same thing early this century, when price of oil hit 147 bucks in 2008, it was the it was the Western world that solved the problem. Shay, it was the it was the North Sea of uh, of Europe that brought on oil in the 70s and early 80s. It was the North Slope of Alaska and the Alaska Pipeline. It was the development of the oil sands. I mean that that capped prices in the 80s and held them down for 15 years. And then when prices went um, started rising again really high in 2005. It was Canada and the U.S., the shell boom in the, in the States and uh, oil sands in Canada that put on 10 million barrels a day and tempered the price. So the people that have solved the problem of high prices are are doing the weirdest, the funniest things, you know, yeah. uh, doing the most, making the most peculiar decisions. And we have that problem in Ottawa. We've got a government that's, that's I don't know what they're looking at, but uh, the point is they're, they're what me worries like Alfred E. Newman. Remember Mad Men? No, I know. What you, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's the thing. Yeah. It's kind of like we've got, we're, we're at competing purposes here. And, 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 and in the end, it's the consumer who's paying the price for it. Uh, yeah, and I, I guess what we have to do, I guess what we have to do is wake up, wake up the public to. Uh, and I don't think of any other way to get it except to, at, at the pump or through the wallets. But yeah, we got, we should be, we should be drilling. We should be looking at increasing production. We should be, we should realize what the problem is. They certainly are in Europe. I mean, they're making all the right decisions have to, in Europe. Right? In the UK, they're they're opening up the North Sea again and reversing their uh, their views on whether we should hydraulic fracture for shale gas. And Germany's building LNG import terminals and everybody's firing up coal plants. I mean, the people are suffering. I, I guess the problem here in North America is that still, as although prices are high, we're still, compared to the rest of the world, we're insulated from mm-hmm. these prices. So we can, you know, we can pretend there's nothing serious going on. But this this, this will come uh, to hurt us all because as long as it's, it's priced in, in uh, world prices or in U.S. dollars, at some point, I don't think uh, with recent events, particularly this decision by uh, OPEC Plus yesterday, I don't see anybody seeing 
lower oil prices anytime soon. And then with winter coming in Europe, we don't know where gas prices are going with it. It's, it's kind of spooky. I think I still don't see politically in North America anyway, the global security supply being the issue that it should be. And that's again, that goes back to what, what the CEO of uh, Aramco was talking about in Europe on, on Tuesday. He was talking about global security supply and global supplies of supplies of oil. Because what Saudi Arabia really wants to do is sell all the oil it can at a fair price for a long time. Yeah. And not, until they can't anymore. Well, until they can't, until the world replaces yeah. it. And yeah. in the meantime, we, it's pretty clear from, uh, from Ottawa and Washington that we've got, uh, certainly the, the, the countries that have the ability to change, to move the needle, not overnight, but over the long term, Canada and the U.S. I mean, the largest single supply of, of oil and gas being intentionally withheld from the world markets for its own good here is in Canada. And so right now they're still, they're still saying, well, yeah, the world's got a problem, but, but it, you know, it hasn't, hasn't affected my popularity yet. And I, I just, it'd be, it's a shame that, that the, the world has to unfold this way. To, to get people yeah. focused on the bigger picture, that's all. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we see what it took in Europe. Uh, Dave, great insight. Always appreciate your time. As the losses continue to mount for Vladimir Putin, there's added discussion, or continued discussion maybe, as to how he may react, as it seems like any prospect of victory that he may have imagined at one point seems less and less likely. Um, as you know, recently his forces have lost a lot of the territory that they had gained. Um, thousands and thousands and thousands of Russians have fled the country rather than answer his call for conscripts. Uh, there's protests in the street and always lurking in the background, and he's talked about it in a number of addresses recently, is Russia's nuclear arsenal. If that could ever be used and, and, and what it, how it changes this whole conversation. So to talk to that, uh, with us, we have Dr. Alexander Lanoshka, who's an assistant professor of international relations at the University of Waterloo. Doctor, thank you for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Thank you for having me on your program today. So Putin, he's always talked about the nuclear arsenal right from the beginning of this. Uh, he's brought it up on more than a few occasions. It never goes away. It's always something that it has to be a consideration in any planning around the situation in Ukraine, right? In a way, sure, and it has been. After all, he did invoke the nuclear card fairly early on in the special military operation when he announced uh, extra staffing at Russian nuclear command and control facilities. But that being said, we haven't really seen too much in the way of new deployment. We don't see a heightened level of readiness. We don't see anything that would indicate any unique preparations for undertaking any sort of nuclear strike of any sort of uh, scale. So it seems like it's mostly rhetorical at this time, and I haven't really clearly seen a theory that would link uh, any use of nuclear weapons on the part of Putin to achieving whether uh, victory over Ukraine or even staying in power. Okay, now there was a story earlier this week, and I'm going to see if I have it here, where there was a convoy that was uh, part of the... Um the Russian military division that deals with nuclear weapons had launched a convoy and people were saying, what does this mean? And all kinds of speculation. But you're saying, as far as the intelligence community knows, there's no real indicators that anything has been advanced beyond just rhetoric. That convoy was simply the result of some tweeting on the basis of maybe a telegram post. Uh, and it was, it was something that indicated some movement of uh, a military unit that's yeah. connected to uh, nuclear forces, but really it, those things are regular and they don't really amount to much. It's not like 
uh, Russia puts nuclear weapons on rail cars and so forth. And much of the academic and policy community has tried to refute the Telegraph article that picked up those tweets okay. and disseminated them publicly. So there's not much there there as regards to that specific story. Can you help us make the distinction with what we would know as nuclear weapons and tactical nuclear weapons and how one seems to be more likely in some circles of thought and what the difference is there? In some ways, there is no difference. A nuclear weapon is a nuclear weapon. But that being said, there are differences in terms of the delivery vehicles used as well as the yields that they would have. Tactical nuclear weapons being of much smaller yields, perhaps uh, uh, for battlefield use. Strategic nuclear weapons, much larger yields fitted on strategic uh, ballistic missiles that could be intended for targets much further away from Russia, targets perhaps those on the continental United States. But again, a nuclear weapon is a nuclear weapon. And so for many people, it'll be taboo breaking whether it is a low yield uh, weapon comparable to the sort that we have seen uh, used against Japan or something far bigger that could be used to decimate a major urban center. And that's an important distinction in terms of the way this is all playing out. It doesn't matter what scale of weapon is used, right? It would be breaking that nuclear taboo that you talk about. and, And that line has been crossed no matter what, right? I would I would say so. That being said, there could be an argument for the use of a tactical nuclear weapon against a, a military target, perhaps one where facilities are very much hardened. You can't yeah. use typical conventional munition to destroy it. Alternatively, as some have uh, speculated, um, there could be a massing of Ukrainian armed forces such that Russian military leaders might find it very tempting to take uh, those forces out with a nuclear weapon. There might be a military rationale to that effect. However, the Ukrainian armed forces don't really mass their forces in such a way as to provide such a tempting target. In fact, they've been uh, pretty good at dispersing and using small um, uh, unit-level tactics all the same and Ukraine's a very large territory, too, so any sort of military effectiveness will probably be very limited in scope. All the same, as I you know, would need to reiterate, it'll be taboo-breaking, yeah, regardless yeah. of the military value, which I think is questionable to begin yeah, with. Yeah, and it sounds, so, so you, I mean, we, and I mean, of course, you're, you're more immersed in this world than I am, so you've obviously heard the people who say, well, once he gets desperate and there's no other options, it's certainly something that's on the table, and there's articles written about how he's not bluffing. You don't agree with that? You think it's all a bluff and that's not something that's legitimately on the table for Vladimir Putin? Even when he talks about his weapons, people assume he's talking about nuclear weapons. He doesn't necessarily say um, or an, articulate a nuclear uh, threat very clearly. It's never been clear to me what is the theory of victory that he would have. In fact, one could argue that if he were to use a nuclear weapon of whatever yield, his international isolation would certainly deepen the security services within Russia will be uh, very much uh, divided on the question. And we are starting to see serious divisions within uh, the security elite uh, that's playing out. That will only widen with nuclear weapons use. He would lose a lot of leverage as a result of using nuclear weapons because the threat is... is that's that's the end, right? Yeah. Yeah, and it would necessitate some sort of response 
I just don't see how it benefits him. I, I don't want to imply that the risk of nuclear weapons use is non-existent. Yeah. I think it is certainly higher than that which existed prior to the 24th of February. But I still think it remains very low precisely because it's really unclear how it benefits him, considering the costs and the risks involved. That's absolutely. a good thing, thankfully. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure it is. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining us. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.